My name is Adam Levine. Yo, this your man, Kirk Franklin. Hello, everyone. I'm Erica Campbell. From London, England and Washington, D.C., you are tuned in to Conversations with Allison J. The Journey to Hear, brought to you by Ethel May Books. This is Conversations with Allison J. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Conversations with Allison J. The Journey to Hear. Today, as always, we have another captivating and thought provoking topic and guest. Here's your host, Allison J. Hello and welcome to another episode of Conversations with Alison Jay, The Journey to Hear. I'm Alison Jay. Please remember to subscribe to the channel, like the videos and share. Today I'll be speaking with Wanda Irvin. Wanda is the mother of Dr. Shalon Irvin, who sadly passed away on January 28, 2017, as a result of complications after giving birth to her daughter. Shalon was a bright and brilliant scientist with a passion for improving community health. In her own words, she says, I see inequity wherever it exists. I call it by name and work to eliminate it. As an epidemiologist at the CDC with two master's degrees and a dual subject PhD, she pioneered research about factors like structural inequity that make people sick. Dr. Shalon was funny, kind, and down to earth, with a zeal for traveling and living every day to its fullest. When she found out she was pregnant after years of failed infertility treatments, Shalon named her daughter Solil, the French word for son. No words have been created to adequately capture the fear and love and excitement that I feel right now, she wrote to her unborn daughter. Though she had it all, a top-notch education, professional success, a strong insurance plan, and a good support network, Shalon was at high risk for life-threatening issues related to pregnancy and childbirth, just by being and for being a Black woman. At 36 years old, three weeks after giving birth, Shalon passed away from complications of high blood pressure. Dr. Shalon's Maternal Action Project honors her memory by picking up her torch. She leaves behind a powerful village of loyal friends and family members, including her mother who is raising her daughter. We are grieved, but not in despair. Shalon is more than a statistic. She is an inspiration, helping to make a bright future for black mothers. The mission of Dr. Shalon's Maternal Action Project is to increase awareness of the Black maternal health crisis and to develop and promote community-based, action-driven strategies that improve reproductive health outcomes and recognize the human-centered value of Black birthing people and families. Hello, Wanda. Thank you so much for joining me here on Conversations with Alison J, The Journey to Here. I'm delighted to speak to you, but wish that we weren't having this conversation, if that makes sense, you know, because I know that we're having this conversation because you have suffered the loss of your daughter. And please accept our sincere condolences 
on the loss of your daughter and that your family has had to go through this. And if you, in your own words, Wanda, can just really share with us what the Dr. Shalon's Maternal Action Project is and how and why it got started. Certainly. Thank you so much, Allison, for having me here today. Um, it is very difficult to go through this uh, each time, but I do it because of my love for my daughter and the fact that she would have wanted to make sure that we spread the word to keep other mothers from um, having to leave their children and other children from having to grow up without their mother. Um, Dr. Shalon's Maternal Action Project was started in 2020. It was named after my daughter because she had a legacy at the CDC of being a, a fierce champion for health equity for Black women and women of color. She fought long and hard in all of her projects and research and participatory um, activities with communities to make sure that those voices were centered and to make sure that whatever research was done was not on them, it was from them, about them, and um, that they participated in whatever solutions were to be found. Dr. Shalon's Maternal Action Project, or DSMAP as we call it, um, basically started as an opportunity to to get the word out, to let women know that this was happening and to let them know that it was no new phenomenon. This has been going on for decades and centuries uh, and that it had just started to peak um, when my daughter um, <clears throat> was lost. And she, I think, shattered that current myth that black women were dying because it was their fault, because they didn't eat right, because they were obese, because they didn't have good insurance or access to insurance, because they, they just didn't know how to um, be healthy or how to follow door, a doctor's orders. They basically just... Um, it was just those kinds of stereotypes that were um, swirling around um, at that time. When my daughter died, she just crashed through all of those because my daughter was an amazing woman. Um, she had dual PhDs in sociology and gerontology. She understood the life course. She understood um, health. She was an uh, epidemiologist at the CDC. She was a lieutenant commander in the US Public Health Service. Um, she had CHES certification. So she was not the typical black woman um, that people referred to when they talked about black maternal mortality. And so um, what we wanted to get across is that maternal mortality basically affects any and every Black woman. It doesn't matter what your education level is. It doesn't matter your socioeconomic um, status. 
none of that mattered. Uh, it didn't matter for my daughter. It was the mere fact that she was a black woman um, and she just wasn't listened to. She wasn't valued. Um, her, her, her condition wasn't taken seriously. And she just wasn't the, given the kind of treatment that she needed to survive. So that's why we started um, Dr. Shalon's Maternal Action Project. Uh, thank you so much, Wanda, for sharing that. And I can't imagine how difficult it is for you, as you mentioned, to go through this and tell her story every single time. And in reaching out to you, because this is something that I've wanted to discuss for a long time, when mm -hmm. I first heard about you know, black, um, maternal deaths of Black women that could have been preventable, it caused me to go down a rabbit hole, for want of a better expression, in digging through the layers to do some research. And I read some reports that says that in recent years, high rates of maternal mortality in the US have alarmed researchers. One statistic that has been especially concerning, and then this is according to the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, where your daughter, Dr. Shalon, worked, is that black mothers in the US die at three to four times the rate of white mothers. And that's one of the widest of the racial disparities in women's health. Mm -hmm. And that's absolutely yeah. So 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 when you look at that and you're thinking, hold on a second, in this day and age, and this and this and this report that I read was very recent. I mean, we're in 2023 now. This is very mm -hmm. recent, and it says in recent years. We're not talking about the 50s or the 60s. And it's something that you said when you were talking about your daughter is that you said that. So that research being done on black women, can you talk to us about that? Well, those statistics are quite alarming that you mentioned. Um, and I think the most alarming fact is that they keep rising. They're not going down, they're, they're going up. Um, and in, I think what has been um, touted by the CDC is that between 700 to 900 women die each year. And no one's taking an accurate count. So there could be a lot more than that that are dying. I know in 2021, the CDC actually reported 1,200 women died that year. And the saddest part is that 84% of those deaths are preventable, totally preventable. So that to me, um, really, it really hits home. And it, it, it's just such a sad statistic. And one of the things you also mentioned, you said three to four black women are more likely three to four times uh, to die than white women. There's another statistic out there that I found quite alarming as well. Um, black women with college degrees are I think it's six times more likely to die than white women with high school education. Now explain that one to me. High school, and it didn't even say that they had a diploma. It just said high school 
um, education. So they and they are high school. <laughs> that's right. That's absolutely right. But Black women with college degrees are more likely to die in childbirth and as a, a complication than white women. And that to me is, it's, it's just unfathomable. How, why? Um, and so I'm sorry, I totally missed your other part of your question. Could you ask me again, please? Of course, of course. Um, you when you were speaking about your daughter, your daughter, and you mentioned mm -hmm. that um, you said something about research being done on black. Uh, yes, yes, and that's been the case uh, ever since slavery. We weren't ever included in that. We weren't included in research questions or how do we, how do we, um, how do we? Oh, let me rephrase that. We were never included um, in projects that were about us and for us. It was always a very patriarchic kind of um, research study, which is what scared most Black women away and didn't want to participate in any of those studies because it was never for us, about us, by us. It was always by someone else and they were designing it from a totally Western perspective. It didn't really center black women at all. And mm -hmm. that's the same with um, my daughter. And she, she refused to have any of her research used that way. If it were about black women, then they had to be a part of it. They had to be a part of designing it. And um, that, that was just, the kind of person she was. Wow, and it's and it's interesting that you should say that because um, I recall reading some time ago that there was a doctor and um, he when he did all of his gynecological oh, research geez. and studies, it was on a black woman. And then if we look at um, Henrietta Lacks as mm -hmm. well, that how her um the cancer cell she had cancer she's an african-american woman for those that don't know and her, her cancer cells were the source of a research and she didn't know about it and up until i think it was very recently her mm -hmm. family have been fighting mm -hmm. i've been fighting this in the courts because it's like, how do you do that? And and then the, and then everything else that came out was like, so it says that the family of a black woman, this is some of the research I found about Henrietta Lacks, the family of a black woman whose cervical cells were harvested, harvested in 1951, that's 72 years ago, without her knowledge and replicated mm -hmm. infinitely ever since. Now, this mm -hmm. is something I read in 2023. Her, her cells were harvested in 1951. So 72 years later, um, the knowledge and the research from her cells mm -hmm. are being used without, that, without her knowledge, without her consent, and without the consent of any of her family. Yeah, and that's the way it was. And I think the doctor you're probably referring to was J. Marion Sims, uh, who did the operations on the Black slave women. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
without anesthesia, without their approval, without anything. It was as if they were, you know, lab rats. And that's it. Um, and the, the Henrietta Lacks situation doesn't go unwarranted. I mean, there are a lot of different examples like that mm-hmm. where Black women were just used because they were property and it was easy and there was no one that they had to be accountable to or answer to. And so all of that went into the fact that they were used as guinea pigs, as studies, and never, ever um, was there any kind of uh, retribution or any kind of, um, any kind of, uh, what would I like to say? Any kind of um, acknowledgement to them or their family for the contribution that they made to, to history. Um, but those kind of things, look at the Tuskegee Airmen. They, you know, the list goes on and on and on. Mm-hmm. It's nothing new that's been going on for decades. Mm-hmm. And it's just a point where, I don't know about other people, but I'm at a point now where I'm 70 years old and it's like, it's time for this to stop. Mm-hmm. I don't want my granddaughter to have to go through this. Had I known a lot of what I know now, when my daughter was in the hospital, then I probably would have done some things differently. And that's what is very important to me now that we have got to put an end to this. Otherwise it's going to continue. And our granddaughters, our daughters, our sisters, all of them are in danger of losing their lives Mm -hmm. because those lives are just not valued. Yes, and something that you mentioned, there's no acknowledgement, but not only was there no acknowledgement, there's been no apology. Uh No, absolutely not. No. No apologies whatsoever for, and yes, thank you for reminding me of that one of Dr. Sims, that, and when I was reading that, and the fact that they were doing their operations and research on these Black women, with no form of anesthesia. And that kind of leads me into thinking about it when when we look at, again, the research and the statistics and even the admission of some doctors as well. Mm-hmm. They don't believe Black women when they're in pain because for some reason they think we don't feel pain. And this mentality and this mindset comes from when they were operating on slaves without anesthesia and they mm-hmm. had to they couldn't do no. anything so so it's not that we don't feel pain it's just like it's like that's the most ridiculous assumption because that's all it is really no medical there's no because there's no medical research to, to, to back that up that black women black people don't feel pain it's literally a mindset that has mm-hmm. been handed down be just simply because of how black people and black women in particular were treated in mm-hmm. um, in using us and using our bodies for medical research. You're absolutely right. And those stereotypes are still being taught in medical schools today. That's the saddest part that, you know, doctors who are coming out now still seem to think there is a biological difference in the bodies of black women as far and white women 
And that comes from all these stereotypes back with J. Marion Sims and his whole party. Um, so the pain is definitely one of them. And there are a lot others. Mm. And I'm glad you said that there's a lot of others, because that actually leads me nicely into another bit of research that I found where it says there are also other racial disparities in that a black woman is 22 percent more likely to die from heart disease than a white woman. Seventy one percent more likely to die from cervical cancer, but more than 243 percent more mm-hmm. likely to die from pregnancy or childbirth-relatable causes. And it's mm-hmm. a, in a national study of five medical complications that are common causes of maternal death and injury, Black women were two to three times more likely to die than white women who had the same condition. So even though I mentioned earlier that they're two to three times more likely, the, the bit that this um Um, additional research I did said that they are two to three more times more likely to die than white women of the same condition. Yeah, and a lot of that can be attributed to the weathering of Black women as well. You know, we go through an awful lot. Um, Being Black in America is not an easy task. And it does, in fact, wear on us. The stress of just being Black, the stress of going to a store and being followed around while the white person's over there stealing them blind, but no, they're still chasing you all over the store. So it's it's that kind of you know trauma that our bodies go through that leads to a lot of our health disparities uh, and what causes us to not be, um, I don't want to say as resilient, but not to have our bodies um, able to weather a lot of the the kinds of stress that we go through. And to be honest with you, some of the stress that we go through and our bodies go through, uh, you you mentioned that some of the deaths are preventable, but some of these Mm -hmm. stresses are also preventable in that if we were just listened to, if we were just treated as people, if we were taken seriously, some of these stresses our bodies more than likely wouldn't even know about to have to weather them and go through them, don't you think? I think had we been treated as human beings from the very beginning, it would be different. Hmm. Um, Those stresses, I think, are put on us from the time we're born and they continue and get worse as we get older. Um, Had, if we were to not have to carry that burden, then perhaps a lot of those disparities wouldn't be as great as they are. But I think you're right in saying that um, a lot of it is because we are just not viewed as a valuable commodity. And we just go through this a lot of times because we're not listened to, because we're not believed, because we're not treated correctly. Um, and we're just just allowed to just allowed to to be without the kind of respectful care 
that anyone in this country deserves. Um, we just don't get that. And that was the part that was really baffling to me um, as a woman, just like my daughter, who had all of these things going for her. How could she be treated as if she were just, I don't know, an ignorant washwoman and wasn't given, not even given a not even given the decency of listening to what she was saying. My daughter went back and forth to the her high-risk doctors no fewer than seven times in a week, two weeks, in the last two weeks of her life. She was back and forth into those, those doctor's offices. She presented with swollen limbs. She had headaches. She wasn't voiding. Um, she didn't feel well. She kept trying to express this to the doctors. They didn't come in to see her. They kept sending nurses in. She begged to see a doctor, sat there with her newborn baby crying for no less than 25, 30 minutes waiting for a doctor to come in, only to have a nurse come in and say he was too busy to come in and see her. Wow. It's like, okay, then if you were so busy, why couldn't you have just put her in a hospital room? Why couldn't you have given her that chance to live? If her blood pressure was so high when she came in that the nurse had to take it twice, it made only good sense mm -hmm. to put her in the room and monitor her. But yet they're telling her, oh, well, you probably have a blood clot. And it's like, unbelievable. My daughter said, I have factor five Leiden. I know when I have a blood clot, this is not it. Well, um, we need to make sure. And it's like things like that. There was another lady, Amber Rose, mm -hmm. went to the hospital um, after delivering, had all of these issues, sat and sat and sat in the emergency room till she finally got up and tried to go to another hospital and died on route. It's like those kinds of deaths are what magnifies that whole 84% that are preventable. These women didn't have to die. Yeah. But, and, and it's so infuriating. I can't even think of a better word. And mm -hmm. not just infuriating wonder, but it's also quite, quite distressing as well. And just yeah. hearing about this, knowing that, for example, so I'm someone who takes medication for high blood pressure. So mm -hmm. I know what those headaches are like. It's those telltale signs. It's like, okay, my head's hurting. Let me just check my blood pressure. Now, mm -hmm. I have zero qual uh, medical qualifications, zero. But I know that if my blood pressure is a certain level and if it's not coming down, I need to go to my mm -hmm. doctor. Mm -hmm. And I remember there was one time my blood pressure was 220 over 146. Oh, my and I went to the doctors and fortunately, the doctor that I was seeing at the time was a Nigerian man. He sent me straight to the hospital. That's, yeah. that's what I, you could be, I think you're having a stroke, you need to go straight to the hospital. And when I got to the hospital, the doctor says, I don't think you have high blood pressure. It's like, um, 
I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Me. What? You don't think I have high blood pressure? So th- th- those readings on that monitor right there, what mm-hmm. does that mean? Mm-hmm. No, I don't think you have high blood pressure. So I thought, oh, okay, this is interesting. A second time of having um, my blood pressure again went up like that. And my doctor sent me again to the hospital. Would mm-hmm. you a different doctor told me the same thing? Really? Two different doctors. So you didn't have high blood pressure. You didn't have high blood pressure. And you mentioned about them saying that your daughter has a blood clot. So interestingly enough, I had a blood clot. So I was on a flight from San Francisco to London. And I, I had this pain in my leg like I've never, ever had before. Got off the flight and I picked up my thing. Went to, I, and I actually went to work. And they says, no, you need to go to the hospital. I went to the hospital and they said, we can't rule out a blood clot. I'm like, okay. Then they sent me home. They called me back within, I think they called me back within 12 hours and like, oh no, you need to get back to the hospital now. Mm-hmm. But the first thing they did was send me home. They, said, home. they can't rule out a blood clot, sent me home. And it actually turns out that not only did I have a blood clot, but it had shifted, it had dislodged and it had traveled and it was on its way to your lungs my lungs yeah and and I thought wow so can you imagine if I had just gone home gone to bed I may not have gotten up because because according to them this thing was traveling it was moving you know and so to your point about what you were saying how they treated your daughter and how they were just so dismissive now I am grateful that I still have my life and I know it could have been very different because of um, high blood pressure, blood clot. And there's other things. Um, I had to demand a laparoscopy. And I, I, you know, I ended up having to have surgery as a result because I having two blood transfusions and all the rest of it. So I get it when you're not listened to. I get it when they don't hear you and believe me I know how that feels because sometimes I'm just like am I going crazy is it is it me because I told and I the reason that I say that is in one respect I was a bit relieved when they said oh you do have a blood clot because I think for us as black women and us as black people we are we are so often so dismissed that when we are going through pain Mm-hmm. We, we question ourselves. That's right. And, and, I know, and I know because I remember thinking, oh, no, Alison, it can't be that painful. You, you must be making it up. You, it must, you must be making it up, right? Because mm-hmm. of having a history of going to doctors and them not believing you, them not listening to you, them just, them, them just brushing you aside like you're, a, like you're just brushing away a fly or something like that, right? Yeah. And so, so to, to know that, and to know that this is still going on. And I'm not going to be honest with you. Some of that was not just, that was both in the UK and also mm-hmm. in the US. So, yeah. it, so, it's a, so it's a thing where you, you just look at it and you just think, what is it going to take? What is it going to take for the medical profession to start listening to us and, ta- and taking us seriously? as well so that we're not dying 
unnecessarily like this. And Allison, in my mind, until there is some accountability that these doctors have to face, nothing is going to change. They've got the protective blue that keeps them insulated um, from any kind of serious legal challenges. And until we, we pierce that veil and say, you lose a, a mother, you're going to help be accountable for that. You know, whether it's murder, manslaughter, something. Mm -hmm. Maybe we need to come up with a new term or whatever, but they need to face the consequences for that, which has not happened. And I noticed, I've talked to other mothers and other grandmothers like myself. They said, well, we wanted to, we wanted to um, file a lawsuit, but there are so many barriers in the way that it's just not worth it. And we don't have the money to keep fighting like this. And they're not going to, to admit that they were wrong. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my daughter came into the hospital. She was unconscious when she came. Because that last visit, she'd gone back in. Um, she had gained nine pounds in one week. She was really um, just desperate for help, but they patted her on the head and sent her home. She collapsed five hours later. We took her to the hospital. She was unresponsive. She came into the hospital uh, that way and died three days later when we took her off life support because there was no brain activity. I demanded a um, an autopsy because I was told anyone that comes into the hospital that is um, non-conscious and dies, they have to do an autopsy. The doctors refuse to do that. They absolutely refuse. Why? Because if you want one, you pay for it. But if, so I'm, I'm sorry, Wanda, I'm sorry. But, refused it. But if that is the procedure, that if someone comes into the hospital unconscious, it's standard practice. It is. Autopsy. Why did they refuse to do one on your daughter then? What, what, what reason could they possibly give that made sense? They said it was an act of God. And it's like, no, no. Had you done what you needed to do when she was in here three days ago, she would have been alive. Sorry, so Wanda, let me ask you. So the same hospital that she was brought to unconscious is the same hospital that wouldn't um, tend to her when she came? It's the same, how do you say, the same medical system Okay. that she had been going to. And the hospital was, I guess there's the women's clinic of this medical system. And then mm -hmm. she went to the emergency room of the hospital there. But still the same doctors, the same um, uh, high-risk doctors that she was seeing. An act of God. Yeah. So so what were they going to put on her? Is that what they were going to put on her death certificate? That's of a good act of God. That's a good question. But I had an autopsy done. So, and I think what, what did they put? They had to change it because they put on something like... Um, Oh, something that had to do with pre-existing conditions. 
that's what they had put on there. Yeah. Wow. And they had to change it when the, the autopsy was done. But even the autopsy doctor was doing some dance steps and didn't want to come out and say preeclampsia. That's what killed your daughter. Had they done what they needed to do to bring that blood pressure down, things might have been different. They were saying, oh, well, maybe things could have been different. But, you know, the fact that she had high blood pressure, it's like that didn't matter. She had that under control. That was not an issue throughout mm -hmm. the entire pregnancy. And all it, of a sudden now. And it just became an issue when the doctors did not treat her. But it, it's like I said, it's a battle. Mm -hmm. You know, you just, uh, it's like everything is stacked against you. You can't win this battle, you know? And that's the thing that a lot of people just give up. And they say, it's just not worth the fight because you can't win. Yeah, and, and to your point, right, it's not worth the battle. I think as well, there's so many people that are complicit in it. Mm -hmm. And prime example of that and I know it was a black doctor that did that um oh, that happened. baby with the decapitation yeah when I read that mm. one of those things where you're reading it and you're just like no this has got to be a misprint this has got to be a because the the way that and this is going to be quite graphic so I apologize the force that was used during the labor to mm. they were taking the baby out of the birth canal was so much that the baby's head came off the baby's body and mm. the reason that I'm using this is in just to give an example of how others are complicit in this mm -hmm. the amount of people that covered it up and the parents did not know yes until the funeral home alerted them nobody at the hospital they were given their baby and from what they were saying the baby was wrapped so tight that the baby's mm -hmm. head placed on the baby's body so the right. doctor during labor knew this happened the mm -hmm. other medical staff in the room during the time knew this happened mm -hmm. whoever took the baby's body away knew this happened Whoever yes. gave the baby to the parents to hold, wrapped up, knew this happened. Now that's four stages, and I and there's not just one person in each state. Mm -hmm. Multiple mm -hmm. people. So just so there's so many people that are complicit in covering these things up. It's really, really no surprise that nobody has ever been. I, sh I shouldn't say ever because I don't know. But that nobody is really being held to account for what is happening and what is going on. No, that's what I was saying. That whole protection of blue, you know, all the doctors stand up for each other. They try to cover up. The nurses do the same thing. It's and you can't pierce that veil. Mm. It's 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 really really hard to hear mm -hmm. and you know, just looking at some of these statistics and going back to something that you said and also that's on your website, that so many times 
people want to blame a woman's socioeconomic status, right? Especially black women. She's from the project. She's, 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 she, she's living in poverty, so she doesn't have access to good um, medical care. She's uneducated. She's unhealthy. She's obese. She's this, she's that, she's the other. But there's several things that come up here. Your daughter, as you mentioned, has a double PhD. She worked for the CDC. Right. So she was a highly educated woman. She was a yes. successful career woman also. So so she doesn't fall into any of those categories that they try to no. use to justify their treatment of black women. And even when you you say put all of those things down, how highly accomplished your daughter was, when we look at Serena Williams, I I don't think you, uh, apart from maybe say Beyonce, Oprah and Michelle Obama, Serena Williams is one of those people that you don't need to say Serena Williams, a tennis player. No, Serena. <laughs> you say Serena Williams, everybody knows who Serena Williams is. And I believe it's something like around the world, right? right. And so that's why I mentioned those other Black women. So as far, as far as famous Black women goes, there are some names you don't need to say, call their name and say what they do after. You, you say Beyonce, everybody knows who Beyonce is. Michelle Obama, um, Oprah. You don't even need to, Oprah, Oprah is just one of these people. She's like Nike, you don't even need a last name for Oprah, <laughs> right? Same with Beyonce. And so Serena Williams, another Black woman who's known around the world, everybody knows who she is. She almost lost her life in giving birth to her first child. I know. I know. And that's what surprises me, that she is not a bigger advocate for women, um, Black women going through pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And I don't quite get that. And, I, you know, everybody, each to their own, and everyone has their own particular um, causes and whatever. But mm-hmm. she almost died. Because she wasn't listened to and because she wasn't believed. And that to me, with the kind of status that you have and you've undergone this, there would be even more reason for you to get behind and and make some noise. John Lewis Mm -hmm. makes some good trouble around this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and it just goes to show that just not exempt because I was, again, looking into some of the, the other research I I was looking at goes um, where you, because you had also mentioned about the, um, the CDC now estimates that 700 to 900 new unexpected mothers die in the US each year and an additional 500,000 women experience life-threatening postpartum com- complications. Right. More than half of these deaths and near deaths are from preventable causes and disproportionately number of black women suffering. But this is something that was really alarming. This is the case for black women, far more than white women. Giving birth can amount to a death sentence. African-American women are more likely, as we've discussed previously, to die during 
or after delivery than white women. Now, this this is it. According to the World Health Organization, their odds of surviving childbirth are comparable to women in countries such as Mexico mm-hmm. and Uzbekistan, where significant proportions of the population live in poverty. Now, if we look at countries like Mexico, if we look at countries like Uzbekistan, these are countries that are typically considered to be countries with large, large amounts of um, poverty. And so the fact that Black women are dying at the same rate as people from these countries, and yet no... and, and. and I tell you, because I know that you mentioned Serena Williams not um, being a bigger advocate, and I get that. But the fact that these are studies coming from the CDC, mm-hmm. these are studies coming from the World Health Organization, but yet you mentioned earlier that the numbers that they quoted at black women being three to five three to four times more likely, the numbers are not going down, they're getting worse. But yet these big organizations know about it. Yeah, they know about it. They have been going back and forth on the numbers because no one really knows how many women are actually dying. There's a guesstimate between 500 to 900. No one has been keeping track of those women who are dying. No one was really counting them before, like the, what are they? The maternal morbidity or maternal, oh gosh, the the committees, maternal more. Is it the maternal mortality review committees Mm -hmm. that are now being set up in different states? Mm -hmm. And they are actually counting those women that are dying, that are dying as a result of pregnancy or childbirth related complications. That's now one of the boxes you can check off on these reviews. That wasn't the case before this happened. So those numbers are really kind of fluid. We Mm -hmm. don't know. What Mm -hmm. we do know is that America has the worst, the worst numbers of any developed country in the world. And that tells us something right there. I I think that's a little bit of an underestimation in that that tells us something right there, because yes, Mm -hmm. It does tell us something right there. Mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. And it's part of me is like, is the world not going to sit up and take notice of the fact that a country like America, where we're sending billions to support countries that are at war, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. we are spending billions bailing airlines out during a pandemic but yet black women dying from preventable and i think that's the key word here black women are dying from preventable um, um, complications during pregnancy and dying after pregnancy and it's the same as countries like and no shade and disrespect to mexico but we all know that crime and poverty in Mexico mm-hmm. it is quite significant. We're the same with Uzbekistan, a country in Asia. And so to know that this is what is happening 
here in the US. And it's just also making me wonder where else is this happening? And we don't know the statistics and the numbers. There's an organization I reached out into the UK that are pretty much doing the same work as you over there mm -hmm. in, um, in, in the UK and in Europe. And I'm just like, it just just makes you stop and think. Okay, when are some of these doctors are uh, going to really sit up and take notice of not just our suffering, but in so many cases the suffering that they are actually inflicting on us when they are supposed to be helping us? I know, I know, and the suffering that continues throughout families. That's another thing. The trauma. No one is taking a look at the kind of trauma that that causes children to grow mm -hmm. up without their mothers, yes. you know, and how their, their behaviors may change without that mother in their life. And that just is something that's not being counted at all toward any of this. But I think to your point, whether the optimum word in your sentence was black, um, that is the key. If this were happening to white women, there would be such an outcry, such um, such focused attention on turning this around right away. But the fact that it's happening to black women is just not that important. It's just not. That hit different. Yeah. We change that. Wow. Like I said, the only thing is going to be holding them accountable. Mm -hmm. I'd love to see a class action suit on the health system across the board mm -hmm. and say, look, this has got to change. You have killed too many women over these last 200 years. It just has got to stop. Mm -hmm. And you're going to be held accountable. Yeah, and it's interesting that you say that because it's part of me just like, it's, it just makes me wonder, they've killed so many Black women from preventable causes. It's like, how do you sleep at night? No, just, it's, it's just, it just really baffles me. And I was looking into... A, a series done on ProPublica NPR, uh, and mm -hmm. it's Lost Mothers. Yeah, with and, Nina Martin. Yes. Mm -hmm. And there was a doctor, Dr. Neil Shah. Now, Dr. Mm. Neil Shah is an obstetrician-gynecologist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston and director of the Delivery Decisions Initiative. Mm -hmm. And that doctor also said that he had to delve deep into what's going on. And he says, the common thread is that when black women expressed concern about their symptoms, clinicians were more delayed and seemed to believe them less. Mm -hmm. He also goes on to say that it forced him to think more deeply about his own approach. There is a very fine line between clinical intuition and unconscious bias and, and and in reading that and that is something from a doctor it's almost like and this is so bizarre that on top of 
all of the trainings that doctors go through to become a doctor, what, what we now have to throw unbiased, unconscious bias training in there now, like treat people equally the same. It's, it shouldn't have to be a case of we now need to tack on this extra module to take you through unconscious bias so that you don't kill the black women in your care. And it's yeah. just, as a, and it makes me think, why did you become a doctor then if you're not going to genuinely care for and look after all people in your care? It's, it's bizarre to me. Question. That's a good question because they seem to forget their oath to do no harm that just seems to just go by the wayside hmm. Hmm. And, and wonder what I know that you says that um, they need to be held accountable but is there anything else in your opinion that can be done whether by the medical profession or us as just individuals to to help us eradicate this and stamp this out now I understand and I appreciate some women, unfortunately, may still die during, as a result of complications in childbirth. I get that. But it's the, the, one, the preventable ones that we're really, really focusing on and looking at. And what can we do, whether we're in the medical profession, just the regular Joe public, what can we do to help eradicate this? You know, I think it's important for us to understand what some of the warning signs are and what, what your options are. Um, there are quite a few apps out there that help women who are going through um, pregnancy or childbirth or the postpartum period that mm -hmm. gives them either a place to get answers, resources. We have one called the Believe Her app, which is a place for Black women to come in and talk and find someone who's walked in their shoes and can give them the kind of support. There's the Earth app out there that ranks um, hospitals and doctors. Do your homework, do mm. your research, find out um, if that's the kind of hospital that you want to deliver in. If that's your only option, then build yourself a support system. Um, whether it's a doula, whether it's a midwife, whether it's someone who has had um, some, some knowledge, some education around maternal mortality, what that actually means, what kinds of things you're going to be facing. Learn who you can go to in a hospital or um, a clinic if you're not being heard. Learn yeah. what some of the words are you need to be telling the doctor. It's like, I don't feel safe. I need to speak with the chief safety officer of this hospital or whatever it is, but learn who your next step would be or where your next step would be. Yeah. You know, build those allies, have those conversations, those hard conversations. You know, don't wait for something like this to happen. And then you're, you're trying to figure it out and what to do and where to go. As soon as you know you're pregnant, then you start doing that kind of research. Thank you for that. And yes, I'm the Earth app. I have heard of um, because the founder, Kimberly Seals Alice, uh, um, founded the Earth app. So that is one I 
have heard of and I looked into it and that's actually a phenomenal app the information yeah the information that is there the help that you can get as a result and I actually will put the details to the and the links to these apps and these mm-hmm. associations organizations that can help in the description of this video Excellent. so definitely will include that so thank you Wanda because that is actually really good to know because sometimes people just they're at a loss because you just think you're having a baby you go to your doctor you have your prenatal care you deliver you go home right but a lot of people and I think that problem is a lot of the times it's not until either you've gone through it or know somebody else that has that even or or now I think everybody has a bit of an inkling about it as a result of what happened to that poor family and that baby in Georgia but before that it's one of those things where people didn't really know anything like that and I think we also to be honest are so trusting of the doctors as well we so much trust and I'm not saying people shouldn't trust trust their physicians that's not what we're saying here but sometimes we put so much trust in them that it makes us as I as I mentioned earlier it makes us doubt and question ourselves like um, Mm -hmm. am I really going through this does it really hurt this much because and this is how what made me realize something my doctor said to me once, he says, Alison, your pain threshold is too high and that's dangerous. It's just like, I think it's a bit, my pain threshold is high because I haven't had a choice. Like like I mentioned to you, going through the the, the blood clot in my leg and being sent home. And, and that's what that's one of the things that made me think, oh, well, maybe, maybe it's not that painful then. Maybe it's me. And it's not until somebody that I know who works in the medical pr- profession came to see me because these are the days when you still had the charts at the end of your bed right she looked Mm -hmm. at my chart and she says why have they got you on this pain medication and I've worked in an office my entire career I'm like I don't know I don't know what it is (laughs) and she says Alison that is some really heavy strong pain meds that's what they give to cancer patients Mm. and it just made me think so I actually really was in a lot of pain then Mm-hmm. If that's what they're giving me to manage the pain, I really must have been in a lot of pain. But because of how I've been treated by the medical profession before that, and the fact that I was sent home, it made me question me. It made me doubt me. And I think for a lot of people, that's what happens. So that may be why they don't. And, and you, you correct me if I'm wrong and what you think of this. And maybe that's why some people don't speak up because they've been made to feel like it's all in their heads. It's not that bad. It can't be that bad. So they don't say anything. That's very true because victim blaming has been the the course of action since the beginning here it's your fault it's not our fault you like you said you're crazy it's you really can um you really can withstand this it's not that bad so you're right there are a lot of women who have a fear of speaking up or who have a fear of um disputing that with their doctor and saying no this is more than that so yeah, um, that's one of the reasons why mm-hmm. those health disparities are allowed to continue. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the purposes of all the work that 
foundations such as yourself are doing is saying, actually, no. If you feel it's not right, say something. Speak not right. Up. Yes. Speak up. Yes. Don't, don't suffer in silence. Don't doubt yourself, second guess yourself, question yourself. And let's be honest, there are some hypochondriacs out there. We get that. We understand yeah. that. However, it's really better to be safe and sorry. And I'm not trying to say everybody must now go and flood to their, their primary care physician oh. or their GP or whatever. But if you're genuinely feeling, if you're going through pain, you're feeling pain, you're feeling unwell, try really hard to speak to somebody. And, and I think what a lot of people don't realize, you can get a second opinion. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the first opinion is you. You know your body better than anybody else on this earth, doctor included. So if you're not feeling well and you feel there's something wrong, there's something wrong. Mm. And you don't have to take that first opinion from the doctor. If you don't believe that he's not hearing you, he's not listening, he's not really understanding, find another doctor, mm. find someone you can trust. I wish every woman had the option to have a doula or someone like that in their life when they were going through. You know, I wish my daughter had had that. But you have to have someone who's in your corner who's advocating for you. Yes, and, and that is very key. And just, you know, in line with what we can do to eradicate um, this, having had a look at the work that you do, it's like, so you've, I was looking, it says you've developed four pillars with, which you use at the base of your action and strategic partnerships. And all the work that you do is centered around storytelling, empowerment, community building, and education. Can you share yes. with us what that is? Well, with us, storytelling is actually sharing Shalon's story across the country. I do speeches and panels and talks on a regular basis during the year, just to get that kind of information out there and to talk to women and to share with them the story of my daughter and what happened, what that means and how they can take from it and um, be able to enrich or to um, have a better outcome themselves. Um, our community building, we work with different organizations to actually build up um, more, <clears throat> excuse me, community health workers and community uh, groups and activities. Uh, we have a program coming out called Grams, where we're working with grandmothers across the country who are raising these, these third generation kids because they've lost their mothers. Mm -hmm. And so the whole thing around Grams and the community building is some of it is getting us back to where we were and where grandmothers had a really um, revered place in society and where we, we were more um, centralized. We were more in, how do I wanna say this? We were not westernized. We were a community. We looked out for each other. And that's what we're trying to bring to communities again. Um, our education is around whether it's our roundtables, whether it's our activities like our Speak, Move, Change, which is held during um, Black Maternal Health Week, 
for our postpartum awareness week, which is held the week before Mother's Day. It's all about education and training and getting that information into the hands of people mm-hmm. and empowerment. I mean, we have our strongest voice. We just need to learn how to use it so that it makes a difference. And so those are the kinds of things we do. um, And we do them in partnership because we don't believe one organization is gonna change this. Mm -hmm. It's going to be working together. It's going to be collaborating. It's going to be joining other voices and bringing all of this to um, an end, hopefully and saving these preventable deaths of mothers. Yes. And it's um, something that you mentioned as well. Um, Previous to talking about the work that you do, the the effect that it has on the children that are left to be now raised without a mother. But also one of the things we didn't touch on is not just the effect it has on the children now being raised without a mother, it's the effect that it has on the family of that woman that passed away. In some cases, um, to your point about the grandparents now having to step in and raise mm-hmm. children. And sometimes these grandparents are elderly themselves and they need some care and assistance right. themselves, you know, because at your age, you mentioned that you're 70, but you're now mm-hmm. raising you know, you're you're raising a baby now at the mm-hmm. age of 70. And I mean, this isn't the days of Abraham and Sarah where she was 90 years old and having a child. These are different times now. Absolutely. You know? so, so there's such a knock-on effect of, mm-hmm. and especially like if we look at it, if this mother has died and say it's not their first child and they have other children now that need looking after, mm-hmm. hey, there are no grandparents so now these children are with family these children may need to end up in care or something like that and I think that we don't appreciate the much wider knock-on effect that this has as a result of this woman not given the due care and attention she needed during pregnancy and after subsequently unfortunately and tragically passing away and now everybody's scrambling to now raise these, this child or children. That's right. That's absolutely right. People just don't understand the domino effect and what that trauma means, not only to the family, but to society mm-hmm. and the loss that we, the loss of such great talent that we are losing every day. And I just think about the kinds of advancements my daughter could have made if she was here. And it's like all of that is lost now. Mm-hmm. And you're right, the kids that are being raised without their mothers. In her, um, what was it, her dissertation, she did it on childhood trauma, which is quite ironic. And it talks a lot about what that trauma does throughout the life course. And it also mentions that that trauma can be evident in up to seven generations, seven generations. That that blows my mind. So this whole thing that the kids are going to, they're resilient. They 
they don't know what they've lost. Mm-hmm. Ask my granddaughter. She knows what she's lost. Mm-hmm. And it comes through every single day of her life. It's, it's you know, you said a lot just there and just what we've lost and how much we've lost and, and what can be accomplished. And because your daughter worked for the CDC. Mm-hmm. So that's just that right there could have that could have been a whole research department founded yeah. just on her experiences and how we can really get to the bottom and to the just and stamp out all of this. And with that in mind, with what your daughter could have done and achieved, I know that your foundation has a anti-racist and cultural competency training. Can you tell us a bit about what that training is and really who it's for? The anti-racist training that we have, we worked on with Dr. Um, Ruplenda um, Lupi, which she is a, a child and an adult psychologist, psychiatrist. We basically um, used Shalon's story in one of those modules. And the training is for anyone who is in the medical or academic field that deals with people of color and has a desire to recognize where their their racism or their anti-bias lies and make a difference. It's a very intensive training. It's very um, life-changing, pretty much. The training is not something that's easy to go through because there's some hard conversations that are had Mm -hmm. during that that training. Um, But it is available and it does, in fact, make a difference. You know, it's beyond this whole um, by unconscious bias, which you can take in a day or two. And it's like, OK, well, I took the training. Give me my certificate. It's not about that. Mm. Not at all. Yes. Thank you so much for sharing that. And something that you said just brought some, um, something back to my mind about the trauma and the generations it can filter down to. And interestingly enough, I bought a book yesterday. <laughs> oh, really? And the book is called It Didn't Start With You. Mm-hmm. And it says how inherited family trauma shapes who you are and how to end the cycle. Hmm. Yesterday, honestly, yesterday, oh, <laughs> I bought that book because I... I just thought that is so important and so key. And there's so many things that that can be attributed to family trauma and we never for one moment stop to think about things like this right black Mm -hmm. maternal mortality we don't think that the trauma that it could carry to your granddaughter uh, and generations to come after that as a result we don't stop to think and so again going back to what we were saying this is so much wider and deeper than a child is now being raised without their mother. It's so much more than that, isn't it? It really is. And we don't. No one gives a thought to that whole um, family, the generational 
kind of trauma that goes on. No one thinks about that. My goodness. Wanda, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing with me and just educating us a little bit as well as to the facts, the figures, because that's really important for us to know. So that, because we don't want people to just dismiss it and think, oh, this is just an isolated case. This is just a one-off here and there. Mm -hmm. It really, really isn't, especially when we look at the statistic I mentioned earlier, that Black women are four, no, sorry, Black women are 243% more likely to die from pregnancy or childbirth-related causes that their white counterparts actually are treated for and survive. So this is such an important topic. This is such important work that you are doing, and I'm so sorry that you even have to be doing this work. Thank you so much, Alison. It was a pleasure having a conversation with you today. I hope that some of the things that I've shared make a difference. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wanda, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate you. And if you could just tell us really quickly, is there anything um, that you you all are working on that is coming up? If you can just share so how people can get involved, what we can do to support and help. Well, we can always use donations. You can go to our website and feel free to donate to our our cause. Um, we are doing the, the postpartum awareness week. We launched that last year. No, this year, 2023, which basically is a week of um, education, community building, um, spiritual, mental, physical kind of um, attention to black women after the postpartum, well, after birth. So it's during that first year of postpartum. We are having our first um, informational meeting this evening. You can um, send me an email or whatever, and I'll be happy to share the link. We'll have several others, but if you want to volunteer and be part of that, then um, please, by all means. Uh, We have the Speak, Move, Change, which is during our Black History Month. Um, There are all kinds of opportunities to volunteer for our activities. Um, Our GRAMS program will be launching next um, next month. And um, I think those are the the key ones that we're working on right now. Thank you. And I will be including all of the details that you've just mentioned in the description and you mentioned people can go to your your website and donate can you tell us what that website is even though I will also include the link in the description um it's www.drshalonsmap.org drshalonsmap.org Excellent. Like I said, I will be including that also in the description. So again, Wanda, thank you so much. It has been a pleasure to speak to you. As I mentioned, unfortunately, we're having these kinds of conversations. But I, yes, and I, but I thank you for your strength in pushing through to not let your daughter's death be in vain and to leave a legacy for her daughter so that her daughter can see that her mother's death wasn't in vain and that 
as she's coming up into and as she grows up into adulthood, she can hopefully take on the baton and she can continue this work in the name of her mother also. So Wanda, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you today. Thank you so much, Alison. It was really a pleasure talking with you as well. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for spending time with us. We're already looking forward to the next episode of This is Conversations with Allison J. The journey to here. Until next time, honor, respect, and blessings to you all. If you want to connect, visit allisonj.net. That's A-L-I-S-O-N-J-A-Y-E.net. Allison with one L, as she is the one and only.